I'm Liz Guinness and welcome to Talking Australia, a podcast by Australian Geographic. In 2017, Lisa Blair became the first woman to sail solo and non-stop around Antarctica. Now she's doing it all again in a bid to become the fastest person to complete the journey. As well as battling 8 to 10 metre swells and 50 knot winds, Lisa's also collecting information for scientific research. From monitoring water quality to mapping the ocean floor, Lisa's kept busy day and night. We pick up the conversation with her just after she rounded treacherous Cape Horn, the halfway point on her round-the-world solo sail. Uh, So Lisa, you're now, you just mentioned you're now more than halfway in your journey. How does that feel? Yeah, it's pretty exciting. We, um, you, you know, it's, it's such a long journey. Like the boat part of this record is only one portion of the journey. It's it's the finish line, so to speak. Um, and it's a project I've been working on for over a year and a half now. Um, so yeah, to hit Cape Horn and successfully round Cape Horn and then cross that halfway mark and be sailing back towards Australia is a really um, sort of monumental part of the record, really. So you've been at sea for 45 days now. Is that right? Uh, today is day 46, yep. Day 46. And for those Pretty people exciting. who... Yeah, it's super exciting and a long time at sea, I feel. Um, <laughs> but for those people who don't haven't been following your trip, do you want to give them a little bit of a, you know, a backstory as to when you started and where you, where you left from, set off from? Yeah, of course. Um, so I started out of Albany on the 21st of February, um, 46 days ago uh, and basically I'm sailing solo non-stop and unassisted around Antarctica is a world record attempt um, so this is my second go at this record and the goal is to break the existing record set by a Russian sailor called Fedor Konyakov in 2008 um, he sailed solo non-stop and unassisted around Antarctica in 102 days and uh, so the goal is to try and do this record in sort of 80 to 90 days and then utilize the platform and the media coverage to raise awareness of climate action now and complete a whole, whole bunch of um, citizen science while I'm down in the Southern Ocean because it's such a data sparse um, sort of region of our ocean. So I'm undertaking quite a lot of scientific uh, work while I'm down here as well, which is very, very exciting. So if you said you're halfway through and you're for days 46, it looks like you're certainly on track to make that 80 to 90 day uh, window? Yeah, at the moment I'm well ahead. Um, so I'm five days ahead of Fedor Konyakov on the record um, mm-hmm. sort of timeline. And I'm almost 10 days ahead of my previous time from 2017. Yeah. Um, I, know, I don't I, know if many of your listeners, I was just going to say, I don't know if many of your listeners will remember the dismasting that happened last time. So um, this is sort of round two of the same record, but with a slightly different twist. I certainly remember listening to you talk about that um, that moment of the demasting, and I, you know, imagine you would never want to have to go through that again. Yeah, hopefully not. We've done every possible precaution um, that's possible to make the boat as safe as possible, and um, I guess the the downside of it is that we've done all those precautions last time too. So there is that element of, um, I guess, luck out here in the Southern Ocean where things can just go wrong sometimes so hopefully nothing does and and I have a successful and safe voyage. So have the the weather conditions been different has the ocean been treating you more kindly this time around? 
It has been really quite different uh, than last time. Mainly the temperatures have been a lot, lot colder. Um, so last time when I sailed across the South Pacific Ocean, which is the largest ocean of the record, it's the largest ocean in the world, actually. Um, and that brings us up to Cape Horn. Uh, it was the easy ocean, so to speak. So it was the ocean where I had a lot of sunshine, not a lot of storms. I still had plenty of storms, but not massive ones, not frequently. Um, whereas this time around, I seem to be getting a lot more storms, especially on the second part of my voyage. And, um, and a couple of those storms were very violent. Um, so just about, I'd say six to seven days ago, I was in a pretty nasty storm um, before I routed Cape Horn and it was generating waves up to um, eight meters in height. So that's, if you imagine sort of like a four to five story building as a wave. And uh, the, the problem wasn't necessarily the size of the waves, it was the wind causing the waves to break. So you've got a building size wave and then you've got 50 mm -hmm. knots of wind on top of it. Um, and the wind here is a lot colder than anywhere else. So that lower temperature air means it's more dense. So it actually applies more pressure to the sails. Um, so to give you kind of a bit of an indication of how the winds work is a rough rule of thumb in the Southern Ocean is that 30 knots of wind here is equivalent to roughly 50 knots of wind in say Sydney Harbour, where it's a bit warmer. Um, and then if you convert that to kilometres per hour you're looking at about 80 to 90 kilometers per hour so um, for me to be in a storm with 50 knots of wind I'm, I'm getting easily 110 110 120 kilometer per hour winds so um yeah it can be pretty extreme out here it certainly sounds like and when you just quickly when you say it's cold what sort of temperatures are you talking about yeah, so the coldest we got down to um, was 3.5 degrees on deck, but it's currently right now four degrees on deck. So, um, yeah, it's pretty icy out here and the sea temperature is dropping quite considerably at the moment, um, just based on how close I am to the Antarctic Peninsula. But um, most of the Pacific crossing, the sea temperatures were above 10 degrees. Um, it's more that air temperature dropping. And then you've got the wind chill factor on top when you've got you know, 30 to 50 knots of wind mm. and sea spray and possibly pouring rain and hail and sleet and all those fun things that you get out here. Oh my goodness. So, you know, obviously looking at radars that that kind of weather or those kind of waves are blowing in. So you've got, you know, um, eight to 10 metre waves. You've got 50 knot winds. Uh, you know, it's coming. What do you do? Yeah, preparation is key to any good storm mm -hmm. and um and and that starts actually before i go to sea so i prepare the boat to take all of these hits by the weather um before i've even left port and then at sea what i do is a um a general whole boat inspection before a storm so i go around and i check every shackle every bolt every fitting that i can access um on board the deck of the boat and just check nothing sort of coming loose or vibrating or, or showing any signs of wear and tear or damage um, i go through the boat and i overhaul the steering cables and the autopilots and i check that my batteries are full um, and that everything's charged up ready to go because you know obviously storms is where most things most commonly go wrong so um to have 
everything prepared to the best standard possible before you enter those conditions um, is part of that survival strategy. Um, then depending on the forecast, I can do a number of techniques to survive the storm. So one technique is called deploying a drogue. And a drogue is um, like a fabric parachute that you stream out the back of the boat. And mine is um, a series drogue, they call it, which is basically 150 little tiny scoops or cones on a long piece of rope. And you deploy it out the back of the boat and it basically holds the boat stationary to the waves and stops the waves being able to sort of knock you sideways and then roll you. Um, so I can deploy that or I can um, put the boat into position called Hove 2, where you basically tack the boat, which is where you go through the wind with the sails and you change the direction of the boat, but you don't change the sails over. So you leave the sails on the wrong side of the boat. And so the jib's on the wrong side of the boat and the mainsail centered. And then um, by putting the helm up to the wind, you can actually stall the sails out and drift sideways. And this drifting um, is creating a slick in the water and the slick is what saves you. Uh, funnily enough, it causes all the waves to break on the edge of the slick rather than against the hull of the boat. And you um, can survive pretty amazing storms by being hove too. So uh, that's the technique I've used so far. Wow. I mean, I'm not a sailor, I'm first to admit, but that sounds incredible to either to happen. <laughs> it was definitely uh, that last storm I had um, kind of three big hits from uh, from the waves. Like I get knocked down really regularly in those conditions where the boat's slapped by a wave and we basically get knocked 90 degrees over. So we get knocked down and back up again. But I had um, one wave hit us so violently that it, it like you know, my boat weighs 10 tons it literally picked us up like a matchstick and just tossed us across the ocean surface and as it broke it didn't go over us or under us it just dragged us along the sea like sea surface with it so we got not only like kind of tossed on our side and then airborne and thrown we then got kind of pushed about 50 meters across the surface of the ocean um, and all you can hear is just like that roar of the breaking white water around you as the whole boat's just engulfed in ocean. Um, so yeah, it was pretty, pretty hectic just recently. Yeah. Hectic is one word. Other people might use the word terrifying, Lisa. Yeah. yeah you know, each yeah. to their own. <laughs> well, this guess this is why you're out in the middle of the ocean and I'm not. <laughs> Perspective is everything, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I like, I like, I like that. And so, are there ever, are there ever occasions where you're simply, it's you've done all your prep, you've battened the hatches, you're down in the cabin, and you're just waiting it out? Yeah, those storms. Yeah, <laughs> right. Every storm like that. Yeah. yeah, no, I um I actually like put myself in the navigation station or my bunk. They're the two areas where I allow myself to to ride the weather out because um you don't you don't want to be in an open area of the boat when you take a hit like that. And yeah. I was in the nav station when I took a hit like that and I was sort of lifted up and crumpled into the side of the boat in the corner, but the navigation station's the sort of smallest area of my boat. So it's the least, I like the smallest area to be tossed or thrown across the boat. Um, so yeah, and I have uh, body armor built into my base layers. So I actually wear that 24 seven. Um, so if I get any bad tosses or throws, um, it's in theory to stop me breaking bones. Um, 
Um, and then I also have a crash helmet if it's really, really bad that I can wear if I need to go on deck or if I need to be in an open area of the boat where that's falling is a real risk. Um, then I've, I've got a, a big crash helmet that I put on and I look like I'm riding my bicycle, but I'm in the Southern Ocean. <laughs> <laughs> uh, have you had to deploy that at any stage yet? Not yet, no. Not yet. Okay. <laughs> no, and I didn't use it last time either, but it's there if I need it. <laughs> um, so I know um, that you have done this journey before. Um, what's the impetus to do it this time, to beat the, the Russians' record? Yeah, well, I guess, um, you know, going through the dismasting for me was a pretty traumatic experience and and people can go back and to listen to that other podcast that we recorded a couple of years ago um but basically like I nearly died a few times that night and it was quite jarring in my confidence but also um it took away something that I had been working for years to achieve so I had spent four years at that point to get to the start line of the previous Antarctica record. And then it was all taken away in a moment when that mast came crashing down in that storm. And while I was able to restart the record and finish the record with one stop, it wasn't quite the same. And, and so I always sort of had this inkling in the back of my mind that give me a few years to kind of like get over the trauma of it. Um, and, and I'd be going back to the Southern Ocean and tackling it again. And, and I also previously really tried to get the science side of things happening because nobody sails in the oceans where I'm sailing and in fact yesterday was the first time I saw land in 45 days and the first ship I'd seen in 45 days was rounding Cape Horn um, because no one's down that far south they're all so much further north because I'm operating in that intense storm belt the entire time of the record um, and so to be able to go back and not just have it be around a girl on a boat sailing around Antarctica in this personal quest, but be able to really deliver something of value to our scientific communities and to our, you know, general population worldwide, uh, to me was just, it was an opportunity I didn't want to miss. And so I spent the last year and a half forming the project up and finding scientific partners. And it's also um, the United Nations decade of ocean science this decade. So it fit just beautifully and and I had had enough other projects that I'd done between the last record and this one to really process that dismasting and in fact it was the writing of the book Facing Fear that was published by you guys um, which it details that story uh, which yeah. really helped me process and I guess overcome the dismasting um, and make me ready to go again. So that um, the scientific research that you're talking about, do you want to unpack that a little bit for us, please? Yeah, there's quite a lot going on, actually. So I basically put my hand up and I reached out to a number of different organisations and I said, hey, I'm the crazy lady who's going to sail solo around Antarctica. Um, how can I make the boat of benefit to our communities and um, what data can I gather that's really going to have value to you um, so I ended up renting from the the Volvo Ocean Race now now called the Ocean Race um, a subsea research unit which is basically like a mini lab that's bolted into the sail locker in the front of my boat and that is taking water in and processing it through the system 
and then discharging it out the boat um, as a 24 hour cycle and it's taking data the whole time so it's collecting acidity salinity chlorophyll pco2 and basically like an array of um, ocean health monitoring um, sort of measurements mm -hmm. um, and it's also monitoring the amount of carbon that we're absorbing into the southern ocean so that carbon like the southern ocean is a bit of a hot spot for carbon processing in our oceans so it's really important to get an indication of how well that that's occurring or how poorly that that's occurring and um and the measurements i'm getting are giving us some forms of indication on that um so that is then going to be uh published worldwide through um a couple of platforms one's called imos which is the australian um sort of monitoring of ocean data um and then there's an international one called ocean ops which is run by the world um meteorology organization and uh, the united nations and so it goes up on those platforms and then scientific groups worldwide and they can um access that data and they can use it for their global modeling and their better understanding of climate change um so that's one element mm -hmm. um Additionally to that system, we've also rented a microplastic sampler. So I've been taking um, microplastic samples every day um, for this entire record, twice a day actually. So I've just taken the 90th microplastic sample of the record, which is really cool. And how um, do you do that? Yeah, so that's this system that same sort of water flow through system, part of the water tees off that scientific unit and goes through this microplastic sampler and and it's a, a little cylinder shaped system where you have these filters and basically you have two different size filters we've taken um, so i have a 100 micron filter which is a more fine refined filter mm -hmm. and i have a 500 micron filter which is a larger kind of mesh size to catch those slightly larger bits of plastic um, and what we're doing is we're running the 100 micron filter for a two hour period every day um, and that is giving us our pin drop um, isolated location of sampling at the real fine sort of data set. And then we're running the 500 micron filter for 22 hours. So the rest of the time in a 24 hour cycle, we're running that 500 micron filter. And that's giving us that broader understanding of um, how much extra plastic might be there that we're not catching because we're not doing so many filter changes. Mm -hmm. um, and then that's getting processed by the Australian Institute of Marine Science um, in conjunction with IMOS uh, when I come back from the record. So I'll be sending all the samples up to them in cans um, and they'll be processing that. And then again, we'll be utilizing that data um, to become freely available to global scientists um, around the world. And then I'll be using that um to roll out a series of school talks that i plan to to do post record um where i hope to just sort of highlight plastic pollution as a as an issue and and leave students with goals and and activities that they can do to minimize their own plastic pollution so um that's another element of it um and you know where i'm sailing there is no data I'm the first one to get data in a lot of the areas that we're sailing through because no one's gone through here before with a sampler. Um, there's plenty of data sets off Antarctica and off the main continents and the main shipping lanes. Um, the Volvo Ocean Race or the Ocean Race also took um, the microplastic sampler when they sailed around the world, um, but they were much further north than where I have been sailing. So um, there's a few areas where we've overlapped, such as Point Nemo, where it'd be really interesting to see how their data set from 
about five years ago, I think it was, will match up to my data set now and to see what the difference in pollution levels might be um, in an area like Point Nemo. Um, and for anyone who doesn't know, Point Nemo is the pole of inaccessibility. So it's the most isolated location in the planet from land anywhere in the world. So you're over 1600 nautical miles from land and you end up closer to the astronauts in space than any person on land. So to find pollution there, and they did find pollution there, um, and microplastics in our oceans is, is you know, pretty terrifying, really. Um, so yeah, so I've been collecting microplastic samples, and then I'm also partnered with the Bureau of Meteorology, and I've deployed um, two drifter boys so far, but I've got um, eight in total that I'll be deploying um, on board this trip. And they're weather drifter boys, so they effectively become little localized weather stations and um, ping back sea surface temperature and uh, barometric pressure via a satellite network for three years to the Bureau of Meteorology database. And that then allows them to get a greater accuracy with um, with weather forecasting globally. And, um, and we've also modified one and turned the boat into a weather station. So I have a modified drifter boy in one of my lockers that's pinging back barometric pressure um 24 7 from the boat to the french bureau of meteorology of all places and um and so i'm a um i'm a data set when you get a weather forecast that gives you those images with the iso bars and um whether it's going to be a storm here or a storm there I'm now a data set giving a greater accuracy um, to that weather forecast because there's not a lot of data sets in the Southern Ocean um, in comparison to, you know, closer to the equator or where there's high traffic zones where there's plenty of um, data. Um, so, yeah, the more data we can deploy out here, the better. Um, I've also deployed an Argo research float, which is, um, we were given it through the Bureau of Meteorology from the CSIRO, and that is this two meter long kind of cylinder shaped torpedo device that you deploy in the ocean. Um, and it floats around for a couple of years. And basically it has this internal oil bladder that regulates its depth and it'll sink down to 500 meters and it'll record measurements all the way down and then it'll sit at 500 meters for like a week and then it'll float back up and record measurements all the way up and then ping that data back to um, the CSIRO database and then um, and then it'll go back down and sink again and it's part of a global um, sort of ocean monitoring system. Um, so I've deployed one of those and I'm also taking part in the Seabed 2030 program, um, which is actually a citizen science driven program that's volunteer based. Um, anyone can do it who's got a boat who goes out. Um, so definitely get in touch if you are a sailor or have a boat. Um, and basically you put a data logger on the boat and it just logs your depth the whole way around. And so obviously when I'm in five kilometer deep water, it's not registering the depth because it's too deep. But when I'm passing over things like um, seamounts or um, the continental shelf of South America, such as Cape Horn, um, then it's logging all of those data sets. And the intention is that they're creating an underwater atlas based off citizen science data um, that'll be released in 2030. So yeah, there's, there's, there's lots of prongs of um, projects taking place on board Climate Action now at the moment. Well, it doesn't sound like you're just sitting around twiddling your thumbs at all, Lisa. 
<laughs> no. <laughs> Although I must admit, when you were saying you were taking water samples for microplastics, in my head I had this vision of you with a little test tube leaning over the side of the boat, scooping up some water twice a day. How ridiculous. Yeah, using one of those manta ray nets. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. No, exactly. It's much more accurate this way. <laughs> Oh, that's too funny. Um, so, I mean, look, I know the people that w- have listened to um, the podcast you and I did a couple of years ago probably caught a lot of this information. But for those who didn't, um, just in terms of day-to-day eating, sleeping, taking care of yourself, what does that look like? Yeah, so it's pretty varied depending on where I am and what the conditions are like. But um and that it's actually kind of different than last time because I have this performance element that I'm trying to to do as well or deliver on. Um, so so last time when I sailed around Antarctica, I was going to get a world record just by finishing. I was going to be the first woman in history to do it, and I am the first woman. Um, but this time, because I'm trying to break Fedor Konyakov, you've got that extra kind of um, – pressure I guess where you're always thinking okay do I need can I make the boat faster can I you know what's my performance like as I'm sailing trying to outpace Fedor Konyakov around Antarctica um so I'm getting a whole lot less sleep especially with all the science side of things taking place and taking up a fair amount of time um but I do try and average uh I think I'm getting around four to five hours a day on sleep on average um and sometimes I generally can get a little bit more than that but I'm pretty sleep deprived at the moment because I've been close to land and um when I'm this close to land I can't really sleep for a long period of time because there's an increased risk of traffic um and unknown factors at the moment I'm I'm nearing an area of the ocean called Iceberg Alley so I'm I'm having to sort of monitor and stand watch a lot more frequently because of those things mm-hmm. so when I'm in high high um sort of density areas I sleep roughly 20 minute micro sleeps and I'll do a four to six hour period of 20 minute micro sleeps but within that four to six hour period I'm up and on deck probably two or three times within that period of time to adjust the sails or to maybe do a sail change because the wind's increased and I need to shorten my sail area or maybe the wind's eased off and I need to increase my sail area um, or I need to tack or jibe the boat or do some sort of sailing evolution. Um, and then when I do get up, I, I check in with my shore team. So I have a, a system on board where I text my shore team to tell them basically that I'm alive and I've survived the night and I'm still okay. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> and then I uh, fill in the logbook. I do um, my initial, uh, I'm, I'm also taking part in a sleep, um, chronic fatigue sleep research study. So I fill out my sleep diary um, and then I have some breakfast um, after doing a quick death check. Mm-hmm. And I live on porridge at sea. I don't know why, but I love it. And uh, (laughs) I have a hot bowl of porridge. It's like dessert for breakfast. It's the best. Um, And uh, and, uh, then I have an assessment of what my day is going to be like. So I might have things that are broken that need maintenance. So then I am working on those. I might have a storm front coming through. So I'm paying more attention to my weather forecast and I'm spending an hour or so um, going over the grid files and, and making an assessment of how I might manage that storm system. Um, I might have media obligations such as chatting to you guys. So I fulfill all of those things during the day. And then um, uh then I have another meal, which is always freeze-dried food for dinner. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes I'll have a protein shake or something during the day just to tide me over 
um, if I have been up for a longer period of time. And then, yeah, and then it's nighttime again. So I tend to, at the moment, because I'm on the a whole other side of the planet from Australia, um, I'm actually still trying to operate pretty close to Australia time zones. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm I'm pretty well awake most of the night and I sleep most of the day. Um, and then as I get closer and closer to Australia and I'm changing time zones, um, I'll that'll sort of change and I'll start getting the first half of the morning and I'll be going to bed um, sort of midnight um, and, and so on and so forth. So um, at the moment, local time, it's 4.30 here, which is basically the middle of my night. Um, and yeah, and but I, I didn't go to bed till 10 a.m. this morning. So I was up all night. That's, that's well, kind of my day. I would be a basket case. I can't even imagine micro sleeps to begin with and then sleeping, you know, the way that you're doing. So hats off, Miss Lisa Blair. If I hit a point where I get too sleep deprived, I start having like two-year-old toddler tantrums and like full hissy fits. And I had a, a you really throw your porridge out of your high day. chair. You throw your porridge out of your basically, high chair. Hey? Basically, I throw my toys on the floor and I scream. <laughs> um, and uh, that's always my indicator that, okay, I need to change my priorities from performance to sleep. And I, I try and bank a little bit more sleep in those periods and, and get out of that sort of mental state <laughs> oh my goodness you kind of it's a, it's a question isn't it if you have a tantrum in the middle of the S- southern ocean does anyone hear you does it did it even really happen <laughs> it's one of those funny things exactly never happened <laughs> never happened right <laughs> so i'm think i'm just wondering with all that work and and trying to sleep and gathering information and monitoring storms do you ever get the chance to watch a beautiful sunset or what is it that, about this that fills you up Oh yeah, no, it's, it's one of the things you have to prioritize that, the, the sort of be in the moment moments. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely, like I had um, a period of time half about halfway across the Pacific where I had dolphins on the bow almost every afternoon. And mm. so I'd just go up on the bow and watch them play. And, um, and it was freezing cold outside. So I'd be all rugged up and I'd just sort of stand there for hours and just watch them swim and play and dive. And, and they're riding these waves and they were just having so much fun. Um, and you've got so much bird life out here, like an incredible amount of bird life. In fact, I learned recently that the Southern Ocean has the highest density of birds per square area than anywhere else in the world. Um, and so you've got all your storm petrels and your um yeah albatross and the likes out here and they're just beautiful to just watch them and it doesn't need to be a sunset you can just sit on deck and watch them glide and it's just like a meditation almost um and I guess like I definitely get the sunsets and the sunrises um and those beautiful moments magic moments I guess you'd call them Mm -hmm. um but it's also that sense of being almost so connected to the ocean because you're out here and your entire survival is on the moods and the shifts of mother nature and on the ocean and how it's going to play out. Um, but it's also, you, you end up so in sync with the ocean, like you, you, you learn the rhythms and you can feel the, the almost the, the mood change at sea as a storm comes through and you can feel the anticipation in the air and you, and, and that part of the journey is a, really incredible part of the journey that um you know unless you've sailed for a really extended period of time at sea not many people really would get to to sort of learn that um 
and uh, it's one of the big reasons why I love doing what I do. Um, so yeah, I definitely get those sunsets. That sounds like a really beautiful um, full stop to our conversation today, Lisa, unless there's something else you'd like to share with everybody. Oh, I think that was a lovely chat. Thank you. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. I feel like I should, I need to let you go back and sleep or eat or do something but far more important than talking to me. <laughs> well, I mean, the only other thing is um, if anyone wants to support the project i'm still struggling financially to to fund all of this and um quite a lot of the science and the like is being funded um myself uh so uh if people are in a position to support they can go to the website there's multiple ways that they can do so um and i blog daily i send videos back daily and photos back daily so make sure that people follow um go to the website lisa blair and um join us for the ride and if you go and check out the tracker you can actually see Fedor Konyakov's boat and my previous boat from 2017 so it looks like um you know you can see them on the tracker and see where I am in relation to them whether I'm sort of ahead or behind on the record which is great rest assured we're all going to be um you know cheering for you as you as you head through um iceberg alley and then um, make your way home take care and let's try and check in again perhaps when you're closer to home and see how you're going yeah awesome thanks liz i really appreciate that that's it for today's episode of talking australia if you have any questions or comments feel free to reach out write us an email podcast at australiangeographic.com or find us on Instagram at Australian Geographic. And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au slash talkingaustralia, you'll find a special subscription offer. So don't wait. Go to australiangeographic.com.au slash talkingaustralia. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening and hear you next time.